You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing all right. How you doing? I'm doing okay. Uh, I got a text message from a mutual acquaintance this week regarding you that I wanted to read on the podcast just to get your reaction to okay, it. Okay, you're going to blindside me with this? This is gotcha journalism right here. This is bullshit. This is from our friend Adam. Okay. He writes, Tell Ben not to get discouraged with hockey. Everybody gets outskated and scored on <laughs> by overweight middle-aged housewives. Ben Folks, over to you for your reaction to this this text. That would be your friend Adam Boomer, right, who last I saw him was doing like a full 360 on his ass on the ice like Bambi. I mean, now see this is uh this can't be substantiated. What you're what you're doing you're just claiming things out of the blue. I'm just, I'm, saying just trying, I'm just trying to clarify who we're talking about. Are we talking about the same Adam? Mutual friend, Adam Boomer. Okay, yeah, because I do remember uh going head to head with his team last Wednesday night. Um, I'm not going to sit here and say that it was my best game of the spring season because when you score two goals the week before that, it's hard, hard to top that. So what you're saying is that you just set the bar too high too early. Too, you got too big too early. Possibly. Possibly. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't recall any housewives outskating me. I do recall a female member of their team who was better at playing goddamn hockey than just about everybody on the ice. Uh, including your friend, your friend, Adam Boomer. Mutual mutual friend. Uh, that's my recollection of the evening. But um, I can tell you this. You know who everybody on my team absolutely hates? I'm going to guess mutual friend Adam <laughs> Boomer. Former Canadian League professional football player uh, who, a little bit of a bull on skates out there. Go Blue Bombers, Didn't, by the way. I believe we play them again this week because there's only like four teams in the spring league. And uh, let's just say... Maybe we'll have to figure out who our enforcer is because he'll have to get out there and send a message. Yeah, I'm, I would not want to be the enforcer having to enforce against mutual friend and former professional football player. We might have to recruit one. I'm not going to lie to you. We got music again this week from friend of the podcast, The Fifth Element, a producer out of Fort Worth, Texas. Thanks to him for that. If you like what you hear, you can check him out at Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element on Twitter at The Fifth Element and SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. That's an A in the word the and the number five in The Fifth Element. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, Artem Lobov didn't beat Cub Swanson Saturday night at Fight Night 108. He didn't even really come close. And yet, somehow, did it seem like a success? And in round number two, Diego, bro, seriously, we we need to talk. And in round number three, World Series of Fighting reinvents itself with a strategy we've known as a failure since 2008. All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Jimmy Wong. 
He writes, dudes, what did Jake Ellenberger do to offend the MMA gods? Not only did Mike Perry blow his brains out with an absolutely horrendous looking standing elbow, the platinum one then starts busting out some provocative breakdancing moves over his dead body. Seriously though, I've been watching the MMA for quite a few years now and from time to time, I find myself still genuinely shocked by the level of ultraviolence this sport produces. Uh, this was one of those times. Ellenberger appeared to be out for an awfully long time. The only other time I remember seeing someone being out for such an extended period was Bisping at UFC 100. Scary stuff. Discourse, please. Uh, ben, Jake Ellenberger caught a bad one. A this bad one? This past weekend against Mike Perry. Uh, in a fight that Jake Ellenberger appeared to be on his way to winning, I would say, up until that point. I believe the knockout was just uh, early in the second round. But uh, the first round was probably a Jake Ellenberger round. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it was not like he was cruising there. He was winning. Okay, but yeah. and for Jake Ellenberger, I'm going to say that's that kind's kind of a shitty situation to be. I don't know if I'm going too far out onto a limb to say Jake Ellenberger has seen better days. Maybe feels a little bit down on his luck. Is out there uh, crafting a lead over Mike Perry and then gets caught with I think it was a left hook and then an elbow straight to the to the jaw, which put him out cold. Uh, which, if you're Jake Ellenberger, I would have to assume is probably a a significant goddamn it type moment well man, that one i agree with jimmy wong here that even when you think that you've become desensitized to the level of violence possible in a sport like this something like that happens and i found myself like scrolling through twitter afterwards and you know you'll see little like vine clips of it showing up and every time i saw one i just kind of went nope i don't want to see that again that was too much Especially knowing how long he was down afterwards. It wasn't even just the, the knockout itself, but he was down there for a while. And as we've noted in the past, the UFC does not do a great job of catching you up on what's happening there. They kind of take the approach of like, let's just make sure the cameras don't accidentally catch the guy still laid out like a corpse on the canvas. Uh, and we'll kind of not mention it. You know, this seemed a little better than they usually do. At least you had Brian Stan mentioning that he was still being attended to down there. A lot of times they'll just kind of wholly ignore that situation. Uh, and if you're in the arena, that's kind of a different experience. I mean, I think we've, we've all been to different MMA events where you see somebody who gets knocked out really bad. And then when they're down there for a really long time, you kind of realize what you don't see on TV. Right. Um, this was one of those, I think. And that, especially it's not only that Mike Perry, he knocks him out like that. He break dances, which... Thanks, Jimmy Wong, for pointing that one out. And then kind of immediately gets on the mic and is like, I think this would probably be Jake's last fight. I mean, that's just a horrible night if you're Jake Ellenberger. It sure is. And Ellenberger, you know, he's only 32 years old, but he's a guy who's shown uh, a lot of wear and tear here, especially recently has been subject to a number of kind of ugly defeats uh, and has kind of a strange story to his UFC career. You know, he made that uh, his UFC debut back in 2009 against Carlos Condit, which is about as difficult of a matchup as you could ask for, for a guy uh, coming into the octagon for the first time. But Ellenberger, he ended up losing a split decision in that fight, but it was the kind of fight uh, where after you watched it, you got the impression that we would be hearing more about both those dudes. Like yeah. Ellenberger, and it was debatable who won that right, fight. Ellenberger afforded himself surprisingly well in that fight against uh, Carlos Condit. Then I think he won six fights in a row, uh, but dating back to uh, the summer of 2013, he is now... Two and seven, it looks like, including being just one and four in his last five fights and now back-to-back -back -back losses to Mike Perry and George Masvidal by TKO and KO. Uh, what, 
I don't know if this is obviously just speculation, but what the heck happened here with Jake Ellenberger? It just seems like, you know, he started out well and and had wins over guys like Jake Shields, Diego Sanchez, Nate Marquardt. Fought some tough dudes during this during this down stretch. Fought all the tough dudes, that might, basically. Might actually even be an understatement. But it seems like Jake Ellenberger started out real hot and then went real cold here during what I guess you might call the second half of his UFC career. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we're... It might be looking for too easy an answer to say, hey, what went wrong? I mean, for one thing, you, you look at him now and he's got, what, 44 professional fights? Um, that's a lot of fights. Yep, that's a lot uh, of wear on the tires, no matter how old you are. Yeah, I mean, he's 32, so it's like that's a lot of fights crammed into a pretty short time. Uh, I also think that maybe he's one of those fighters where uh, his style didn't evolve as much as it needed to or didn't add as many tools as it needed to to compete uh, with some of the, the guys who were threats all around. Um, plus, you know, some of these fights you look at, he was doing well in kind of a similar story to this, and he can get knocked out. And, you know, when when that starts happening to you, as we've seen, it usually doesn't get better over time. It's not like, you know, your chin gets tougher and more resilient as you age. Mike Perry comes back uh, following his loss to Alan Joe Ban in, in December of 2016. Uh, and gets this win over Jake Ellenberger, which I would argue is a pretty important one for him on the main card uh, of this this fight night card to kind of keep himself viable in this welterweight division. Uh, he seems to be a guy who who athletically uh, has a lot to offer. Clearly, he's a heavy-handed striker, and even though he didn't necessarily look like the the better-rounded MMA fighter in this contest, he ends up winning by stunning KO via elbow in the second round, which... If you're that guy, it's probably about as good as you can ask for. Uh, and then I didn't see this, but I understand he he did a what I can only describe as crazy Mike Perry style interview on the MMA Hour today, uh, and obviously uh, had some problematic public relations stuff earlier in his career. I know that previous to this, the co-main event podcast has been split on whether we think the UFC sees Mike Perry as a guy that it, that it wants to be, if nothing else a television main card curtain jerker because he goes out there and knocks people out. Uh, what do you see from Mike Perry, I guess, moving forward? And are you starting to come around to my way of thinking at all that maybe he's a guy the UFC uh, sees as somewhat promotable? Wait a minute. That was your way of thinking? Yeah. Your way of thinking was that Mike Perry is somebody at the UFC sees as promotable. Yes. And you said no. This is a, this is different than I remember. We might have to review the tape on this uh, because I think my position was that you know, kind of hard-hitting knockout artist kind of guy was the, the kind of dude that the UFC definitely has a place for and definitely has has plans for. I think the problematic public relations thing is uh, something that still has to be sorted out uh, because you know how MMA fans are, is that once they get an idea of you, it's hard for them to change it. Right. And the idea that many of the people, at least the people who pay attention to like, you know, a fighter's life on social media and the stuff outside of just in between the horns, the idea they got on Mike Perry was not super flattering. Uh, that he seemed like he might hold some, some racist views or, uh, just generally kind of ignorant views. And I don't know, maybe people jump to that conclusion about him too soon or, uh, do, do, do too much to the company he keeps kind of thing and not necessarily because of anything specifically that he has done. I don't know. I think that it's it's going to be tough to get people to change their minds about him, but I also think that if you go out there and 
you're the kind of guy where people can reliably say, like, you're going to try to knock somebody out no matter what, and the only way really to beat you is the way that, or at least the reliable way to beat you is the way that Joe Ban did it, like, pretty much staying away from you. The UFC is paying attention to that, too, and I think that they will find good matchups for you. You know, they will, they will find somebody for you to fight that uh, will play into that style. We're going to have to go back and check the tape. We are going to have to go or back and check find someone else to do it for us. I think, is... I think what you said at the time was that you didn't think there was any way the UFC wanted to be in the Mike Perry business. I think that's what you said. I think I said the opposite thing because they kept putting him on TV in high-profile spots. I think we talked about this after the Joe Ban fight or before. Okay. It's possible. I think you are just trying to catch on to the winning side here. You're saying – you're. You're saying that your position has always been that uh, Mike Perry going to be somebody. That's not – I mean, my position was that the UFC thought he could be somebody. Not necessarily what I think or believe because who am I besides who, right in this who, situation? Who are you indeed? Next question this week comes to us from Jonathan Ganyu who writes, Is there any worse indictment of the UFC's fighter pay and profit sharing than Al Iaquinta getting on the mic and instead of calling out a top 10 lightweight, he plugs the opportunity to make a 3.5% commission minus overhead on your next house sale? Now, Ben, I know that we're going to talk <laughs> in round number two about this fight between Al Iaquinta and uh, Diego Sanchez that was the co-main event on Fight Night 108. But I wanted to make sure that we gave the proper time to Rage and Al on this show since if I had to wager, I'd say we'll probably spend the bulk of round two talking about Diego Sanchez and what is to become of him. Uh, but Ray Janelle just continues to be kind of weird and wonderful as far as I'm concerned. Uh, not a guy who's going to sugarcoat it or uh, mince words when it comes to how he's feeling about, I guess I would wager almost anything and, and certainly including in that uh, his, uh, his working environment, which he doubled down on. Again, with, on the MMA Fortnite with uh, Ariel Helwani today. Well, and, uh, you know, he had lots to say about it after the fight as well. And, you know, made some good points, too. I think when you – you can argue that maybe sometimes he doesn't go about getting his message across the right way or the best way, uh, especially when he's on Twitter and just replying to news of who got performance bonuses at the end of the night with a tweet that quotes that and then just says, fuck you. Maybe that's not the best way to ingratiate yourself to the UFC. It doesn't seem like he's really that concerned with it at this point. But I do think a lot of what has happened with Ally Aquinta can be seen as an indictment of the way the UFC handles pay and just handles its fighters in general. You remember, uh, isn't he the one who said that he was banned from getting a performance bonus like for a few fights as a penalty? As a penalty for... Not going to the the fighter summit, I believe it was, and then they saw like a post that said he was at the beach, and he was like, "Hey, I live right near the beach. It's not like I took a separate right. trip to go to the beach." Right. Uh, and same interview, I believe, where he tells the story about how he got dissed by the pizza guy, right? Where Al <laughs> Iaquinta is pulled over at the side of the road, and he gets recognized by a pizza guy, and the pizza, and this is in Long Island, of course, and and the pizza guy's like, "Yo, Al, what's up, man? I love you." And then the pizza guy looks at his car and is like, "Bro." You should be driving a better ride. <laughs> Somehow I don't remember that story, but, but that's delightful. It's one of the touchstone moments in, in, <laughs> in Al Iaquinta deciding that he wasn't getting paid enough. Well, and when you look, you know, Danny Downs and I talked about this a little bit about, the, you know, is he right to complain? Because nothing seems to split MMA fans on Twitter so much as a, a claim like this where a guy's like, hey, I, my contract is bullshit. It's not worth it to me. I'm not going to do it anymore or I need to get a better contract or something. And you get like, just this hard split between people who are like, 
fighters all deserve more money. These guys, are, by and large, are not getting a fair share of the pie. And then the other people say, hey, you signed the contract. Shut up about it. Show up and fight. And when you look kind of at what he's done in the UFC, that was his 10th fight. Uh, eight and two in the UFC. I believe a four-fight streak. Maybe five-fight streak now. Yeah, five. Yeah, five-fight streak. Four of those were finishes. Um, and Joe Lozon, Jorge Masvidal, and Diego Sanchez. So, uh, you know, Diego Sanchez probably on the downside of his career, but like not nobody's that right. Ally Quinta is beaten up out there. Right. And according to him, he made 26 grand to show and presumably, you know, 26 grand as a win bonus. Um, but like for the Masvidal fight, he made 23 grand to show. Like he's not shooting up in pay the way you might expect for a guy who's stacking wins on top of wins. And especially to a guy who like, you know, started out on coming on the show off of uh, Ultimate Fighter, make an eight and eight. Uh, and then, you know, he, 10 fights later, eight and two, really good in the UFC lightweight division, which is a talent rich division. And you're not in that much better of a pay situation if you're out like, I mean, I don't blame a guy for looking at that and saying, I need to really think about whether this is worth it or not. No, I don't blame him either. Like, uh, and I feel like from a fan and spectator standpoint, a lot of times, uh, we want fighters to think about this business differently because we're not involved in, uh, the nitty gritty details behind the scene. And we don't necessarily, uh, experience all of the like grueling physicality of it than to, uh, to be paid what we don't believe is a fair wage. You know, we, we have these high minded ideas that we want fighters to think about honor, uh, and justice and competition and all this stuff. Uh, when for the most part, they're doing this as their job. And that's not necessarily, uh, the stuff that crosses all of our minds when we, when we think about our jobs, uh, and in the case of Ally Quinta, I, I think that he is the, he's a, a super polarizing guy, just like you said, just cause you're always going to have people, uh, who come down on the side of personal responsibility and, and say that if you did sign the contract, you shouldn't complain about it. On the flip side of the coin, I've always been of the opinion, number one, that when the company is keeping 85% of the profits thereabouts, uh, there's ample room for everybody to get a pay raise, or there would be if you were uh, interested in having a more equitable share of those profits. And number two, just because of the way that the UFC books and sells its fight cards, it actually needs dudes like Ally Quinta. Because, you know, this past Fight Night 108, where the main event was Cub Swanson versus Artem Lobov, is perhaps uh, a better example than most in that it's it's the UFC is expecting its fans to come to this not necessarily only for the main event uh but for all six of those televised main card fights and that's why guys like Ally Aquinta and guys like Joe Lozon and guys like John Dodson and guys like Mike Perry frankly have value because you know the MMA has never really done the boxing style promotion where you tune in just for the main event and even right. even though the main event is obviously the most important fight on the card you can't if you're the UFC you can't let too many Al Iaquintos walk away right. before you get yourself in trouble. Especially because when you start losing your Ronda Rouseys and maybe your Conor McGregor's, or at least not have them around as often to be the like one-person uh, sales pitch for a lot of these pay-per-views, you have to sell them on overall strength. Like you, That's what the UFC used to do and found a lot of success doing before it had huge box office stars that it could sell pay-per-views with just by putting their name on there was by stacking the whole thing and telling you that in the aggregate, the whole thing was worth it. And if you start letting some of these guys go, then you're not going to be able to do that. Plus, it's just a depressing commentary on the sport. When a guy like Ally Aquinta, 
who, you know, you look at what he's done recently and that he obviously still has room for growth. I mean, there's a guy who maybe could be a lightweight champion someday. What if he doesn't, what if he decides that it's not even worth it to hang around and find out? Like, name me another sport on another big network. Like, the same way we've had this conversation about how you have to go and watch cops at times to find somebody uh, fighting on, or somebody who is on Fox making less money than UFC fighters are. If you got a guy like that in a major pro sport on a major network who decides it's not worth the money and he'd rather go sell condos in Long Beach or Long Island, then, you know, you have yourself a problem. It, that seems like kind of an unsustainable model. And it's just, it's embarrassing for you when people start to realize that. Right. Unless there's just a, uh, an unlimited supply of ally acquaintances. There which, is not. Which, yeah, uh, I, I don't think that there is. And, and, uh, I have a feeling that uh, just from the way that it handles its business arrangements that the UFC would like to believe that there is, though. And I think that that's, you know, one of the disconnects here. Next question this week comes to us from Eric Murphy, who writes, Joe Lozon deserved better. So Tennessee didn't want to adopt the new rules. Okay, fair play. In life, you're allowed to ignore progress. You're allowed to be an asshole. You're allowed to wear a bedazzled 10-gallon hat and pretend you're a cowboy, even if you've never touched a fucking horse. Fair play to you, Nashville. Oh, wow. Apparently, Nashville, Tennessee likes their judges like they like their music. Absolutely fucking terrible. Man, Eric Murphy is just going in on the city of Nashville. Coming out, spitting hot fire here at the... Uh, at the whole country music scene, I would say. Uh, how the fuck do you dominate for four minutes and not get a 10-8 round from all three judges? Were they, wa- they were watching, right? And after not giving a 10-8 to, to Lozon, two judges turned around and gave Ray a 10-8 in the third. Mother of fucks. I'm sick of the judging system and even more tired of bitching about it, but we have to use... But we have to, but if we have to use it, how about some goddamn consistency? Shame on you, Chris Lee, Dave Taroli, and especially you, Jeff Mullen. Motherfucker has been judging since UFC 12 and is one of the two morons who scored the Bisping fight against Matt Hamill. Wow, we're just, uh, getting pretty far afield here. I know that they are, and spelling every name wrong, by the way, I know that they are a symptom of the real problem. It's clear we can't fix judging, not this decade, but how about some sim- something simple like showing the judges' scores during the fight? How can we make that happen? Uh, so perhaps the specific point here, Ben, is a weird, is a, uh, you know, a pretty good fight, I thought, between uh, Joe Lozon and Stevie Ray on the main card of this UFC show over the weekend that Stevie Ray ends up winning uh, by majority decision, uh, where Joe Lozon really did just goddamn dominate round one on the ground and then uh, certainly faded in the third round to give up uh, the, that obvious round to Stevie Ray, but had what I consider to be a, a really close second round uh, and then comes out with with the loss here but i'm um, looking at the scorecard here and uh chris lee did give lozon a 10-8 okay in that first round uh jeff mullen scored at 10-9 for lozon and looks like uh dave tavoli scored at uh, 10-8 for lozon as well which is why he had the 28-28 scorecard okay so we did have two judges score round number one 10-8 for lozon right okay well that uh that seems like a more defensible score then Yes, it does. So maybe this was one where uh, Eric Murphy needed to do some research. Perhaps we needed to do some research before we write it on the show. (laughs) There we are, though. Here we are, talking about this fight, which is in recording every second of it. (laughs) How did this happen? I don't know. It's just just one of those things. What what European soccer team do you think Eric Murphy plays for? He sounds like a... uh, Tottenham uh, guy? Ajax. (laughs) Okay. That's a team, right? Yeah. Somewhere? Sure. I think so. 
Uh, well, it, we we put this question on the show to have an excuse to talk about Stevie Ray versus Joe Lozon. Oh, fair enough. Uh, which I think we can probably still do, despite the fact that the judging may have been a little bit more uh, accurate than than was alleged. Now, fire email, though. Yeah. <laughs> fire, hot fire email. Yeah. I feel like Eric Murphy might have some hate mail coming his way from residents in or around Nashville. But... You know, this is one of those fights where I started to wonder a little bit about what might be going on with our boy Joe Lozon. Because it looked to me like he had this one in the back. Yeah, you know, and I, I know we got some other emails about this fight, one of which asked if uh, the thing that we sometimes talk about on this show where fighters come out and get old in one night, whether or not that happened to Joe Lozon. Uh, I'm not sure that's that's it's fair to say that about him at this point, despite the fact that he's another one of those guys uh, who just at 32 years old uh, has uh 40 fights under his belt uh and has been fading a little bit down the stretch here uh at this point i would be inclined to say though that it was just that first round probably that did joe lozon in just uh he expended maybe too much energy thinking he was going to get a stoppage there uh because he really was putting it on stevie ray pretty hard uh and then maybe from there just kind of gassed out in the next two rounds yeah you could easily be right about that i also felt like at times I started to wonder, is Joe Lozon's toughness getting in his own way? Uh, because, you know, especially you see in that third round where Stevie Ray is just wailing away at him. And when the final horn sounded and, you know, the referee gets in there and Stevie Ray has to step away, then you see Joe Lozon just kind of stumble forward right. as if the only thing keeping him up was the force of the blows. And... He, no one can question the man's toughness or his resolve because he was going to still keep standing there uh, trying to throw back, uh, eating punches. And uh, it seemed like maybe his reliance on his ability to do that is what kind of made him give away this fight. Because uh, you look at that first round and you think, well, I only see one way that Joe Lozon can lose this fight. And then that's the way he went ahead and lost it. Uh I mean, uh, you're right. It could just be like, hey, you think you're going to get a finish and that not only the physical exertion of trying to finish off a fight, but that kind of like adrenaline dump of thinking that it's almost over and then it's not. I'm, You know, that can absolutely tire you out. Uh, but it did. It, it made me wonder if, you know, sometimes we see it with guys where they get too into thinking of themselves as an exciting kind of bonus fighter and then they end up giving away fights that they should get because of that. Next question this week comes to us from Chris A.N. He writes, can we pour one out for the career of Miguel Angel Torres and one of the finest molds to show off business in the front party in the back? Uh, curious what he was like to interview and if we should be a little sad because he seems as a once forgotten champion during the WEC era and a, a lighter weight pioneer. Uh, I think that's totally true about Miguel Torres, who, you know, before the lighter weight classes in MMA came to the UFC was uh, at least for a while uh, one of the, you know, regarded as one of the best pound for pound fighters in the world and was just a straight up killer for some of those years in the, uh, in the WEC. Uh, and then again was another one of these guys that, uh, you know, goes, goes from being 39 and three to suddenly uh, going one and four uh on the big stage, uh, you know, closing out what would be the highest profile stint of his career and, and, you know, moving out of world series of fighting in 2013 and kind of going back to the, uh, the independent circuit there. But, uh, 
yeah, I would say all of those things are true about Miguel Torres, a guy who probably does deserve to get a little bit more publicity about what he meant to the sport and how good he was during a time when not a lot of people watched uh, those weight classes. Yeah. Uh, and was an early reason for a lot of people to watch those weight classes. As far as what he was like to interview, um, genuinely funny, I would say, for Miguel Torres. And you don't, you don't say that about a whole lot of fighters. Uh, he was one of those guys where if you could, if you were going to call him up and get an interview with him, you knew that you were going to get some good stuff. Sharp guy, uh, funny guy, and, uh, you know, generally just a, a lot of fun to talk to because you got the sense that there was a little more happening upstairs than there are for a lot of the fighters you end up interviewing. Um, you know, it's with guys like him where their best days were in the UFC. I always, or the WEC, I always feel conflicted about it because you think about what a small audience, uh, they're performing for and how we always end up in this situation of trying to impart to people what it meant to be one of the really good guys in the WEC that is basically like being, you know, a top guy in the UFC. It just didn't, you know, the initials were different at the time. Um, and it just feels like maybe people have heard that defense too often that it kind of like they just, their eyes glaze over when you start to, to launch it now, but it's true. And it kind of sucks that those guys don't get that same recognition. Yeah. Those WEC cards were, some of the most fun slash best MMA cards I've ever seen a lot of the times, just because they were all uh, featherweights, bantamweights, lightweights for a while, welterweights. Uh, and there was just, you know, crazy dudes over there like Carlos Condit, like Miguel Torres, uh, Uriah Faber, Jose Aldo started out over there. Dominic Cruz. Uh, Dominic Cruz, absolutely. And, and they would be the most action-packed fight cards top to bottom, and then the ratings would come out, and it would be like 109,000 people watched this. Yeah, 20,000 of them on accident. Right. They just left it on after whatever bass-fitching show was on uh, the Versus Network. Didn't even wake up until cycling came on. Anyway, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter, which did not come out last week uh, due to situations beyond both of our control, but comes out most every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss when we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. It's short. It's informative. We would like to think it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, the Fight Night 108 main event pitting Cub Swanson against Artem Lobov uh, was a little bit of a head-scratcher heading into it. Uh, Lobov was not necessarily a guy that we regarded as a UFC main event level fighter. He was just 2-2 two and two in the organization, uh, headed into this fight and was 13-12-1-1 overall. Uh, but this turned out to be a pretty fun fight, and I don't know if that was necessarily a surprise. Stylistically, I think a lot of people thought that this had uh, the potential to be an entertaining scrap. Uh, but did you come away from this, Ben, feeling any differently about either Artem Lobov or Cub Swanson than you did going in? Because I think it's safe to say uh, Lobov uh, afforded himself better than his status as a nearly 5-1 to underdog would have uh, 
would have forecast. True, and yet never did you really think that he was in danger of winning the fight. Right, yeah. He uh, he had a solid first round. Seemed like he came out with uh, the proper game plan, uh, which I guess is also not surprising considering he trains from the uh, – comes out of the Straight Blast Dublin gym in Ireland run by John Kavanaugh, which obviously produced Conor McGregor. Uh, and if nothing else is, is probably known as a collection of relatively smart dudes who are going to send you out there with the proper game plan. Uh, but it just seemed like as the fight wore on, again, a five round main event, uh, Cub Swanson was able to respond better, uh, was able to react better to what Artem Lobov was doing. Uh, and just, I think at the end of the day, frankly, had more skills and more ability than Lobov and who, who frankly wasn't really able to respond to Cub Swanson's response. True, and yet I will say, I will give Lobov credit that, especially the last two fights, it looks like he has added some skills. Just not enough, or not, you know, enough of them quickly enough to compete with somebody like Cub Swanson. Because, you know, he definitely, you could tell that he he was ready for a lot of the stuff that Cub Swanson did, and he had some answers for it. And, you know, maybe in an alternate universe, one of those hooks lands, and, you know, he, he gets lucky and he wins the fight. And... That was not – there were times in the fight where you could tell that that would not have been completely out of the question. Yet the main thing he had going for him here was an ability to take a shot. Yeah, and certainly like uh, – I don't know if memorable is the right word, but like an interesting style from Artem Lobov to just kind of stand there relatively flat-footed and and dump bombs at Cub Swanson, uh, which, you know, turned out to be – more effective than I think a lot of people wanted. But at the same time, as you said, as the fight wore on, it seemed like not only was there a greater diversity in skills for Cub Swanson, a greater diversity in strikes, but he landed the harder strikes too. So it was sort of like uh, he had Lobov outgunned in, in all aspects, really, was the was what I came away with, you know, after your unanimous decision uh, where two judges gave Lobov one round and the other scored it as a shutout for Cub Swanson. I think I felt like that was the... Uh, my overall takeaway anyway. But yet, you know, Lobov does benefit from really low expectations going into sure. this one. Yeah. You know, he was 13 and 12 and 13, 12 and 1 going into this fight. So, and like you said, a huge underdog. People really didn't expect him to do anything. And if you can do something, then people are mildly surprised. You know, it's, it's it, like, hey, how about that? And I wonder though, like for Cub Swanson, it really highlighted, I think, what a sort of bad deal this one was for him because it was a step down from his last fight as far as quality of competition wise uh, and like what the win actually means. I mean, it's still, it's nice to fight in the main event and to get that spotlight all to yourself and to get kind of a showcase in it, like against a guy who is going to stand there for five rounds and let you show off all the cool shit you can do. Uh, you get to hit him over and over again. Everybody gets to, to marvel at your ability to kick a guy in the face and also throw that straight right hand right down the pipe you know, all the good Cub Swanson stuff was there. Uh, and yet, when he's standing there afterwards and suggesting a title shot, that's where it kind of drove it home for me that, okay, so what we're led to believe is that a victory over unranked Artem Lobov, who is now, has, you know, 13 and 13, uh, basically, that is worthy of a title shot. And yet at the same time the other voice in my head was going yeah but come on we don't do things that way anyway right. anymore anyway so who cares like sure give give cub swanson the winner of jose aldo max holloway just don't pretend that this was the fight that propelled him to it right and i think that makes for an interesting discussion about what exactly matchmakers were trying to do with this 
matchup to begin with. Uh, Cub Swanson has been a guy who's been regarded as, you know, one of the top, let's say in the top 10 of featherweights, basically for his entire career. He lost his first professional fight uh, way back in 2004. But aside from that, the people he has lost to in his career are the 2007 version of Jens Pulver, the 2009 version of Jose Aldo, Chad Mendez, Ricardo Lamas, Frankie Edgar, and Max Holloway. So uh, we have some evidence to suggest that if you beat Cub Swanson, you are a pretty good 145-pound fighter. He himself has never fought for the UFC title. So that makes me wonder exactly what we're doing here. As you said, we've got Jose Aldo and Max Holloway going to fight to uh, unify the featherweight titles, we hope. Uh, if you're Cub Swanson, you might want to stay ready. He says he wants a vacation, but when Jose Aldo's in the picture, you know your phone could ring. Even if that fight comes off and you, you come away with an undisputed champion, uh, you'd think that the next title shot would have to go to either... Frankie Edgar, Cub Swanson, or Ricardo Lamas. Those are the guys who are kind of clogging the rankings up there during, you know, at the top. So I guess that's my question, man. Like, what were we even angling for for the UFC by having Cub Swanson fight Artem Lobov? He came in, obviously, as a, as a big favorite. So you think maybe, like I said last week, that it's a showcase fight for Cub Swanson. Yet at the same time, like you just said, uh, it's kind of a, a no-win situation matchup since you put him out there with a guy in Artem Lobov, who's probably tougher than people expect. And I feel like one of the nicest things you can say about the guy is that he's super durable, which is not necessarily a recipe for uh, a highlight reel knockout for Cub Swanson. Right. Well, were we just trying to fill a date on the schedule? Yes, that, yes, so? that is the easy answer is yes. And please, the the line that they're trying to sell it on, which was that, you know, Artem Lobov called him out, questioned questioned his balls and his toughness. The reason that doesn't work for me is because anybody who has seen any of Cub Swanson's fights knows that that's like the one thing about him that you really can't question. Right. Which like, is, has anybody ever looked at Cub Swanson and said like, you know, he just doesn't seem quite tough enough. Right. Which to Cub Swanson's credit was exactly what he said leading up to this fight where he was basically like, if you want to call me out and talk trash, like say something true at least, you know, like one thing that you can't say about me is that I I don't have heart or balls like that's basically all i have yes well no he has significantly more than that right. but yeah He's a super skilled guy in addition to that uh but i thought that that was kind of the correct move for like leading up to this it seemed like cub swanson was content to be the sort of like seasoned veteran to artem lobov's like uh cheeky up-and-comer you know like basically right. said he wanted to put a beating on this kid because he didn't know how to act well and maybe that's like we've seen this uh, a similar approach before from the UFC where when you have some contenders and you're not really sure how the title picture is going to shape out uh, shape up one thing you don't want to do is start putting your contenders against each other and having them knock each other off and you've already seen i mean Frankie Edgar has a submission win over Cub Swanson Ricardo Lamas has a submission win over Cub Swanson so you are you just trying to get into or yourself into a round robin with, you know, the numbers three through five in the rankings or whatever. I, I can understand why the UFC would want to look outside the box a little bit for some of those matchmaking. I just, it seems like what we're really looking to do is wait and see what happens with Aldo and Holloway, if, if it happens, um, and then kind of reassess from there. And this seems like a fight to fill a date and keep your options open. Moving forward is the, uh, 
the Artem Lobov era as a main eventer over in the UFC, or if God, they, I hope so. Well, if they roll out, you know, three months from now, and they're like Anthony Pettis versus Artem Lobov, fight night one twelve, live from Milwaukee. Are you buying it? I mean, I don't mean literally buying it. I mean, as a figure of speech, are you buying that? Man, I will start to worry about uh, Artem Lobov's long-term brain health if that's the role that he fills. Is for something like okay. Especially if we got to go to Milwaukee to fight Anthony Pettis, then you know what's up. You know you're you're the guy who is a reliable punching bag, uh, who we can count on to to give us five good rounds of work for the other guy in front of his hometown uh, fans, and yet be in no danger of winning the fight. Well, yeah, it'll be interesting to see because I don't know if you are Artem Lobov, where I don't know where you go from here, from being the main event against you know Cubby Sampson to then. Uh, somewhere down the road, fight another unranked guy on a streaming preliminary fight on Fight Pass or something. It's going to be a weird ride. In any case, Ben, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what is your Are You Fucking Kidding Me? this week? Well, Chad, I need to take a second to talk about my dude, Brandon Moreno. Okay. Assassin baby. Now, on the prelims here, he goes up against Dustin Ortiz, uh, who is from Franklin, Tennessee, and, you know, had a little bit of crowd support behind him. You know, Brandon Moreno, who, as we were reminded on the broadcast, uh, coming to you straight out of Tijuana, where in between training sessions, he helps at the family pinata making business. Are you kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Uh, he goes out there. Dustin Ortiz clearly has him a little bit in terms of, uh, wrestling ability he gets taken down a bunch on round one starts to get taken down again in round two it looks like uh oh he's just kind of going to get uh grounded into the mat here and lose kind of a lackluster decision but oh no head kick drops the guy jumps on his back chokes him out brandon moreno assassin baby are you fucking kidding me trying to become one of my guys because where you really sealed it is afterwards where you showed up to talk to reporters and said that you really believe you're going to be champion if not you know soon then eventually and then when somebody asked if mighty mouse is still the champion at that time how do you beat him uh and then he just smiled and said i don't know <laughs> you fucking kidding me brandon moreno you're officially one of my guys uh boy we could do a whole show just trying to figure out what the assassin baby nickname even means you don't know but you know uh, ben, per a news item out today, Philip Jack Brooks is about to take part in a reality television program over on the MTV. Better known as? CM Punk, your uh -oh. guy. Uh, this is, I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs here uh, from the MMAfighting.com newswire, which is, that means this is a story nobody even wanted to put their name on, uh, which tells <laughs> you something. Here's, here's a couple paragraphs from it. The WWE headliner turned UFC fighter will take part in MTV's The Challenge, Champs versus Pros, this spring. MTV's official website announced Monday. CM Punk and nine other well-known pro sports figures will go head-to-head -head with former winners of MTV shows Road Rules and Real World in athletic competitions. Among the other pro athletes competing are Olympians Lolo Jones, snowboarder Lindsey Jacob Ellis, and former NFL linebacker Sean Merriman, as well as former WNBA player Candace Wiggins. Now, Ben, at this stage in the game, if you're CM Punk, and you just made a big deal about how you really, like the thing you wanted most in life was to be an MMA fighter, which I did not begrudge him. I talked about it again and again on the show. When you choose to go do this reality television show, which he's doing for charity, which I think is, again, a positive thing, that starts to change the story for me. It's starting to seem like CM Punk, wayward wanderer, I think we already knew, maybe 
maybe was a lot more interested in some of the attention than actually being assassin baby style future champion in the UFC. Are you saying that just because he's there alongside Lolo Jones, who has committed her entire adult life, it seems, to just trying whatever athletically related endeavor can keep her name in the news? Also, I guess, are you fucking kidding me? If I have to choose in doing any athletic competition against CM Punk and or Sean Merriman, I'm going to go ahead and take Philip Jack Brooks yeah. as my opponent. Give me the punk. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, rough night for Diego Lionheart, formerly the dream, formerly the nightmare, formerly also the nightmare again, Sanchez. At 35, he goes out there against Raging Ally Aquinta, gets knocked out in about 98 seconds, and for the first time in his career, really knocked out. He's been TKO'd before when just, you know, like Joe Lozon at UFC 200 kind of piled up the punches on him until he was somehow still standing for most of it, but clearly out of it. BJ Penn famously opened up a huge gash in his forehead with a, a shin and put the punches on him. But this is the first time in a whole lot of fights, including a whole lot of beatings, that we've seen Diego Sanchez get put to goddamn sleep. And it happened quick, and it was ugly to watch. Yeah, it was. And, uh, you know, like you said, if anything bothered you about this loss for Diego Sanchez, uh, I don't think anyone was necessarily surprised to see him lose this fight. Uh, but the manner in which he lost was somewhat hard to watch. Uh, because at first, you know, it was clear that Ally Aquinta was going to be the more technical striker and putting together the better combinations. Uh, but the first time he tagged Diego Sanchez, Diego Sanchez uh, tried to, for lack of a better phrase, Hulk up and do the Diego Sanchez thing that we've all seen for years and years, where he was going to turn this into a bloody battle uh, and maybe at the end of it win a bullshit decision. Uh, and Al Iaquinta was not having that. And he just kind of stepped back uh, and knocked Diego Sanchez out cold, which, like you said, despite the fact that We've all become accustomed to seeing Diego Sanchez lose these fights dating back to 2009 when he lost to BJ Penn and uh, from then on has never really put together the kind of sustained success that he had prior to that. Uh, we are not accustomed to see him get knocked out like that. And even before this fight, it seemed to me in the pre-fight press stuff, either Diego Sanchez had fully embraced the crazy Diego Sanchez gimmick or he was he's starting to get a little out there even for Diego Sanchez, uh, which I think is all kind of cause for concern once we reckon with, again, another guy, 36 years old with about 40 fights, uh, and uh, clearly on the backside of, of what was once a, a real uh, successful career, and a guy I think in Diego Sanchez that everybody likes, and that, on top of everything else, uh, makes all of this mounting damage kind of troublesome. Yeah, what's more troublesome to me is that when you really think about it, and I wrote a column about this, and I think you can see it if you look at his social media presence post-fight, 
Diego Sanchez is not the guy who is going to realize when it's time. Like, right. you know, which is not, we've known that for a while. Right. And you can really see it. You know, he was on Twitter shortly after the fight being like, Hey, everybody, perfect CT scan. I'm fine. Don't worry about me, which, you know, it's not quite that simple. It's not, you know, it's not like just because you go get a CT scan after the fight, that means you're going to be totally fine and none of this damage is ever going to catch up to you. Uh, then I see him on Instagram and here I think we get into a, a conversation we've had before, and it seems like we're going to have again. Uh, here's Diego Sanchez on Instagram today. This is a heartfelt message for all the supporters of what I do, but more importantly, what I stand for as an athlete, a man, and warrior of the octagon. After evaluate, evaluating the situation with a clear mind, I have two options. Question mark for some reason. Uh, the first is to feel sorry for myself, start doubting myself, God, and everything that makes me a winner. Thinking negative like many people would and even are. Uh, the people that are not in my shoes, the people who have no clue and are just are so fast to throw out retirement and this and that in all caps, you're not me. So just shut your mouths right now before even saying it. It's not yours to say. I speak from the heart and do not sugarcoat shit. So there's the path. So there's that path, the quitter's path, or there's the Diego path, what being a lion heart is all about. It's picking yourself up when you fall, learning how you fell and how to prevent it from happening again. So I think you see where we're going. Yeah. And I, on one hand, you know, we've talked about this before when he says like, hey, it's not yours to say like right. when I should retire. And I, in theory, I agree with you. I, you know, you are the one who is taking the hits, who is making the sacrifices, who is doing all the suffering in the gym and in the cage and all that stuff. It should be yours to say, you know, you are, should be the one who gets to make that decision. Um, and yet at the same time, I think because of the mindset that has made Diego Sanchez the Diego Sanchez we've known for his entire career, just like a 15-year career, it seems like he's one of those guys where he will have to be protected from himself because he is just kind of built to not be able to recognize that you might be on a dangerous downward trend here. Yeah, uh, and on one hand, I think it's easy to understand where Diego Sanchez is coming from and where any fighter is coming from. If that's their point of view, because uh, the people calling for your retirement and maybe some of the hand wringing that goes on publicly, including on this show, uh, is really it. He's right that it is made from a remove. It's made from afar. We don't know him personally. We don't know his situation or or uh, what he feels like he's capable of as an athlete. But it also, and especially with Diego Sanchez, it's all legitimate concern, and it all comes from a good place. Uh, because like I said at the top of the round, Diego Sanchez is a good dude. If you ever talk to the guy, uh, I did a story on him during for the, I think it was like the 10 year anniversary of the ultimate fighter. And he was one of the first winners. So it was basically like, uh, a retrospective of, of him as the first ultimate fighter really. Uh, and I talked to his wife, Bernadette who's just a, another lovely person. And I talked to Diego. I talked to one of his high school coaches. Uh, and you just get the impression that they are just really uh, good-hearted, normal people. And so when you think about this guy more as a man than as an athlete doing stuff that uh, we are afraid will, if not already, will at some point uh, endanger him in the future, like endanger his longevity, endanger his ability uh, to be the guy he wants to be in the future, like that is is troublesome for a lot of people. And so uh, I see both sides of the coin, I guess is what I'm saying. I understand his 
uh, insistence on pressing on, but I also understand the concern around him. Well, and the other wrinkle to think about is that we've seen in the WME IMG era, you're not going to be getting a paycheck just to quit, you know, just for your agreement to stop Yeah, you're not going to be the vice president of, uh, you know, internal operations or whatever Matt Hughes (laughs) Right, yeah. Uh, (laughs) I believe Matt Hughes actually was, what, like, supposed to be some kind of, like, fighter liaison. Right, athlete relations or something like that. Yeah, and then every time he was asked about it in public, he went out of his way to make it clear that he was not going to do anything. Uh, (laughs) But, yeah, that's not going to happen anymore. And that was a, you know, you can understand why when a, a uh, really disciplined corporate team buys the UFC for a huge price tag, they would look at those kind of arrangements and be like, well, there is some fat that we're immediately going to trim. And yet it was a genuinely useful tool. It did work uh, in a way that like the, the fight, it solved at least in a few select cases, a problem that the fight game has never been able to solve, which is how do you convince some of these guys that it's time to quit um, paying them to quit? really did work except that now that it's over you got guys like matt hughes talking about well maybe um maybe i'm feeling good again yeah uh, fax me the contract bellator that's right and that's that's not going to happen for diego sanchez so then what is going to happen like clearly he you know he has that same mindset that he had like 10 years ago which is like hey i just all i have to do is figure out what i did wrong how i lost this fight get back in there and uh, I'll show you all. I'll show you all that you shouldn't have doubted me. And the only way he can really do that to his own satisfaction is by winning. And yet, we've seen how that can snowball for guys. They, you know, you don't want to quit on a loss. If you win, though, that's just proof to you that you don't need to quit. You're, you still got it. And so it seems like we're, we're entering kind of a like a dangerous cycle here. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, it sounds like a broken record, but I feel like so many conversations in this sport all lead back to similar places or the same place really. And, and uh, that's that it brings up the need for better representation of the athletes as a group, because maybe the only way that you're going to have a situation where these men and women who have done this for so long can, can conceivably even walk away or even like begin to broach the topic in their minds is if there's going to be something waiting for them on the other side. Right. Okay. Now that's what I was going to ask you next is would you feel better about situations like this and a guy continuing if there was a pension like all of the NFL? I mean, I don't know that I would feel better about him continuing, but I think you would have a, a more realistic chance of a lot of people making better and cleaner breaks from the sport if they had or if they had, if they were Diego Sanchez and they had already been in this thing, uh, you know, in the UFC since 2005 and as a professional fighter since 2002, uh, and is yet another guy with 40 fights under his belt. Uh, you know, if, if, if he had been able to sign up for some kind of union based pension plan earlier, early in his career and didn't, you know, didn't even necessarily have millions of dollars squirreled away, but had enough that he felt like he could go do something else, maybe you would have more people who could even approach the idea of retirement in their minds. Because right now in this sport, it seems like you have an epidemic of people, just like you said, who can't even like get themselves there mentally. And it's either you want to go out on a high note, so you want to get a win, or you can't go out on the loss, so you got to keep going after that. So it just makes it, it turns it into this vicious circle and cycle that makes it really hard to walk away from, which, and I understand that in this sport, we are still really, really far away from having an adequate organization like that. But conversations like this about a guy like Diego Sanchez, to me, really remind me that, honestly, that's what we need. So what do you think happens here? Do you think that the UFC gives him a 
another fight a few months from now, a, a lower level opponent? Uh, do you think the UFC starts to consider parting ways with Diego Sanchez? I don't think the UFC can part ways with Diego Sanchez, not only because there would be other people out there who would give Diego Sanchez fights. Right, but then that's somebody else's problem at least. Right, yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, and, and he seems like a guy who has meant a lot to the UFC, and you know that the UFC means a lot to Diego Sanchez. I would love to think that there, were a, there was a Chuck Liddell-style intervention waiting for Diego Sanchez where the UFC just told him that he, you know, they weren't going to give him fights anymore. But like you said... It's not like they can give him the golden parachute either and install him with some kind of front office job. We don't think. Uh, so yeah, I don't maybe know. the new WME IMG version of that is they tell you that they got you a job holding cue cards on the Conan show. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah, you'd think that there would be a lot more opportunities out there if they wanted if they wanted there to be. Anyway, that's probably going to do it for round number two. Uh, we will be right back with round number three. Ben, do I need to get my Quad City Silverbacks t-shirt out of the uh, closet? I know you still have it. Big changes afoot at the World Series of Fighting, where uh, well, I guess it's not even the World Series of Fighting anymore. No, it and is not. We've rebranded over on that side of the street. It's going to be the, uh, what is it, the Professional Fighters League? That's right, the PFL. The PFL, uh, which I guess I could say in its favor seems better to me than the World Series of Fighting. Especially because there was no like World Series aspect of the World Series of Fighting. Say this, in defense of the Professional Fighters League, more accurate. Yes, at least for now. It is Professional Fighters, and we are led to believe that they will be organized together as part of some kind of league. So there you go. Right. I mean, I think still the the word league is still the most tenuous part of those three words, but yeah, sure. I'll give you credit. You get the professional fighter league. However, maybe I just say this as a former employee of the now defunct international fight league. When I look on your website or I look at the email that you send out and I see how much emphasis you're really putting on, uh, as they put it here on the website, the world's only mixed martial arts league, you know, that's it's kind of like you're saying like the world's only three-wheeled car because there's a reason there's a reason there's not a whole lot of those out there there's a reason why we might only need one at a time because it's not an idea that has worked super well in the past no that's true uh we got an awesome rap out of it out of the ifl which maybe it's uh it's leading contribution it's lasting contribution to the sport uh but you're right. Just like I said at the top of the show, it it seems like this idea of team MMA and and season MMA uh, has been tried before, tried by the IFL, tried by the early days of Bellator, uh, which was technically organized into seasons, and there were uh, quote unquote the toughest tournament in sports, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, all of which has been hamstrung since the beginning, uh, both in the IFL and those early Bellator tries by any number of issues. Uh, not the least of which is that th this is not, despite the fact that this is a sport that uh, has self-organized into various super camps, I don't know that it's one that necessarily uh, translates well to being a team sport, a quote-unquote team sport in, in the cage or in the ring. Uh, and tournaments, obviously, are, are super fun. Everybody loves a tournament of anything. Put it in a bracket and people are going to watch it. 
but uh, the various ins and outs of mixed martial arts, including injuries and pullouts and people missing weight, obviously make that a uh, a dubious proposition at best. Right. So any chance at all that the uh, PFL, the former World Series of Fighting, is able to figure out a formula that makes this work, uh, because I do feel like if you could have tournaments that that worked and if you could have uh, cohesive teams that stuck together, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. It's just the thing that makes us feel pessimistic about this is that we've seen other people try and fail. So can Ray Sifo and the team do anything different that, that uh, you know, makes the prospects any better here? I don't think so because of... The reasons why it hasn't worked in the past is because of just how many like intrinsic elements of this sport resist that structure. Like you said, I mean, the difficulty in just keeping a tournament together, it's not like these guys are robots and you just line them up there in the brackets and then they'll just all proceed accordingly until there's one natural winner that everybody recognizes as the guy who deserved to win it. It's, it doesn't just, it doesn't work that easily in mixed martial arts. I also think though that the question you have to ask is what would success look like? For the PFL, uh, because if you're looking to be a solid third place uh, behind Bellator and the UFC, sure you could pull that off. Although I assume that that's they're not content with that, I, right? Because isn't that where they are now? Right. Well, and that's the other problem is I think that WSOF already had its share of problems and a lot of questionable backroom stuff, and uh, you know company structure stuff uh, going on there. And there was never really any point where it seemed like they were trying to deal with whatever the, the corporate culture is there other than just putting out fires as they appeared. And so now when you do this kind of really hasty rebranding, okay, now we're doing a totally different thing. We have a totally different name. Uh, go. It seems like a desperation move. Like it, it just tells everybody that you're kind of panicking. Yeah. Uh, it kind of does. Uh, and so that I think that the, the midstream rebrand coupled with the fact that this seems like a backtrack in a lot of ways, uh, you know, in, in philosophy and in direction, uh, for the company, it does just seem like a very strange decision for the world series of fighting to do this. Not that, like we said, not that world series of fighting was a rad name with a, with a tried and true, uh, winning f formula for success, uh, but it's difficult to imagine what uh, this kind of season-based MMA slash team-based MMA would look like in a successful way. Yeah. Even though we already, you essentially already have a blueprint for it in college wrestling, right? Which is a a very individualized sport where people compete as part of a larger team. Uh, but at the same time, it just just seems super hard to uh, to hang together in mixed martial arts. Here's the description from the email he sent out. The new league is open to all professional MMA fighters worldwide. Fighters will participate in one of seven weight classes and compete in regularly scheduled fights throughout a season. At the end of the regular season, fighters with the best records will advance to a win-or-go-home postseason playoff tournament. Each tournament winner in the seven weight classes will be named the Professional Fighters League season champion and collect a $1 million cash prize. To me, this is the most interesting thing you have going for you. An additional $3 million will be shared between other regular season and playoff competitors, okay. which is a lot less money spread around to those guys. Right. Um, but it also puts you on the hook for $10 million uh, right there, which, okay. But that, to me, it's kind of like the same thing that's going on with the current season of The Ultimate Fighter. 
which I don't know if you've watched any of it yet. I watched episode one uh, last week, and they make clear in the first episode they're like, okay, this time instead of fighting for like the six figure contract bullshit thing that they always say, uh, the there's a cash prize at the end, like a two hundred fifty thousand dollar cash prize, which reminds you how money really works as an easy way to make something feel important. The same way like, you know, gambling on something works to make you suddenly way more interested in it. Uh, that is the most interesting thing that I hear so far going on with the PFL because a million dollars at the end to somebody who, you know, becomes basically a WSOF champion, that's a significant amount of money. Especially if you could get Ray Sifo maybe to handcuff it to his arm. And carry it around in a Halliburton suitcase. Now we're talking. The whole time. Yeah. Hold it up above his head. Point to it. Constant, the camera constantly cutting to Ray Sifo so he could point at the million dollars that he has <laughs> yes. handcuffed around his, his wrist. So not necessarily teams is, is what it sounds like from, from that paragraph. Right, yeah. It sounds like individual competition. But it also sounds um, like a whole lot of work to get your money because first you got to go through this regular season. Then if you got a good record, you go to the playoffs and then you got to win throughout the playoffs and then you get your million dollars. I mean, I assume you get paid along the way as well. Um, but also if I were a practical thinking fighter and I saw WSOF just do this quick rebranding, I would want to know like, wait a minute, are they going to be around long enough to complete one season and still have a million dollars to give me? Right. That seems like a, a valid concern. I would say if you were a fighter also, uh, boy, that just, I mean, it sounds basically like regular MMA and they're just going to put everybody in a, in a table in like a in a standings type situation, uh, which is maybe not the worst idea that I ever heard, but uh, you better hope your top five guys don't all get injured the first week of the playoffs or whatever, because then you're then you're screwed. I yeah. mean, I don't know if you're any more screwed than you would be anyway, considering True. where we're at. Anyway, do you want to do uh, just saying stuff, and then we'll uh, we'll get out of here for this week? Sure. Well, Ben, uh, I'm not telling anybody anything they don't already know if I say that. Uh, the co-main event podcast at times can be nickname obsessed. Uh-huh. So this week I wanted to just say that two nicknames struck me during the Fight Night 108 broadcast over the weekend. One of them I would say is good and one of them maybe not good. The not good one I'd have to say is uh, Steve Braveheart Ray. Since, you know. He's Scottish. Scottish fighter. Maybe just a little bit too on the nose for my tastes. Especially when you look at Stevie Ray's Wikipedia page and you see that his other nickname is Stevie fucking Ray. <laughs> yeah. Which is better. Oh, yeah. The good one, though, Ben, and honestly, I can't believe that I've never heard of this por this person before, uh, but it is Courtney Cast Iron Casey, who was mentioned as part of uh, the future broadcast where I believe she will fight Jessica Aguilar at UFC 211. Because Cast Iron Casey? Are you kidding me? That sounds like a person I could get behind. Yeah. I'm just saying. Also sounds like somebody you could imagine like fighting hobos in the, the 30s. Yeah, just like fighting people in boxcars. Yeah, which I would watch. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm going to stick with your nickname theme here because another nickname jumped out to me on this broadcast. And it's one that I think we've all heard before, and that would be Scott Hot Sauce Holtzman. Pretty good, I would say. It is pretty good. It's unique. It's got a little alliteration going on with it. Uh what really, though, sold it to me was Brian Stan was talking about this nickname uh, and how he got it because he puts hot sauce on everything. There you go. And he starts, yeah. <laughs> there, I mean, you already have a distinctive trait. That's how you get a nickname um, right yeah. there. See, and th for one thing, I'm just saying that kind of detail 
encourages us to believe that this nickname was organically generated, that people around you noticed this behavior and applied the nickname to you rather than you sitting around and trying to think of what would sound awesome. Uh, so I like that aspect of it. But also, Brian Stan starts naming stuff that Hot Sauce Holtzman will put hot sauce on. Uh, and, you know, it's like, okay, he'll put it on rice or he'll put it on sandwiches or put it on french fries. And you're like, okay, great. Like, I get it. He likes hot sauce. A lot of people like hot sauce. Like, fine. And then he says he puts it in soda. What? I'm just saying that's where you finally convince me that your love of hot sauce is not the normal love of hot sauce. Because that kind of commitment to it, borderline pathological, and I'm into it. I'm just saying. Just saying. Wow. Soda. Yeah. That's disgusting. Yep. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. If you tune in next week, uh, we'll be looking ahead to UFC 211. Is that what we're doing? Or we got another uh, Ain't Shit Going On week next week. And then we'll be looking ahead to UFC 211. So send us your cards and letters because we'll need stuff to talk about. You never know what might happen next week. As of right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. I mean, should a pro fighter even be drinking soda to begin with? I mean, that's the that's one of the first questions that I have about putting hot sauce in there. My second question would be, how do you even think of that? Yeah. Are you, did you are feel like you, you ran out of things to put it on? Are you having lunch and you just can't stop yourself? You just feel like you need to put hot sauce in the soda? And this, what, what do you do if the hot sauce gets too hot and you need to take a drink or something to cool yourself down? You're fucked. Maybe, maybe it's some kind of like psychological uh, torture 